welcome to the Market Matters podcast from Emirates NBD. I'm Katija Huck, Chief Economist and Head of Research, and this week I'm joined by my colleague Daniel Richards, who is an economist on our team, to discuss what's happening in labour markets in various parts of the world. Hi, Danny. Hi, good afternoon. We've seen over the last few months some rather surprising trends in employment data, with job growth slowing even as economies recover from the pandemic. There's been talk about a great resignation in the U.S. Businesses have been complaining that they can't hire or retain staff. And there's also been increasingly um, talk about wage-driven inflation. We'll be talking about all of these things um, over the course of the next half hour or so. But first, let's look at the latest U.S. jobs data, which was released on Friday. Um, What were the main numbers and what do they tell us about the state of the U.S. labor market at the moment? Yeah, so I guess the key takeaway first off is that it was another big miss for the NFP uh, for September. It came in at a net gain of 194,000 new jobs, and that's far short of the consensus projections of half a million net gain. And while we did see a revised, uh, the August figure was revised up, but it was previously at 235,000, that is now 366,000. Even that still remained far below the initial expectations for August as well. Uh, Other data points from the NFP print, we did see unemployment take a substantial step lower that came in at 4.8% down from 5.2% previously, but even that was partly a reflection of a further fall in the participation rate. So even that can't be taken as a wholly positive development from our NFP print. And then in terms of sectors, if you drill down a bit, there is uh, only 74,000 new jobs in hospitality and leisure most likely reflective on the, of those ongoing uh, COVID-19 health concerns in the US. But if you look at employment and food and services, they were a little changed again for a second month in a row, following on from January to July, when that sector reported average annual average monthly gains of nearly 200,000. Um, and then also at the close of last week, sticking in labor market data, we did also have the initial jobless claims data print for the week to October 2nd, that did beat projections. It came in at 326,000 rather than 348,000. But even that is still far higher than the pre-pandemic norm of around 200,000 a week. So there's, I mean, there's quite a lot to unpack there. You mentioned um, labor force participation rates remaining quite low. Um, and that's obviously key to you know, how the unemployment rate is measured. Um, there seem to be a lot of jobs available in the U.S., so the problem appears to be more with the supply of workers rather than the demand for them. Why aren't people in the United States going back to work? Yeah, that's exactly right. There are actually nearly 11 million job uh, open positions in the U.S. in July, according to the latest JOLTS data. That's a record level, and despite that, the take-up of these jobs has been pretty sluggish still, as we've seen in those uh, several months of disappointing NFP reports. When you compare it to where we were prior to the pandemic, there's still around 5 million fewer Americans in the workplace than there were were back in the start of 2020 and 2019. And that high level of both job openings and uh, unemployment is far greater than it has been prior to uh, or following previous crises, suggesting that the the matching efficiency of the US labor market has really taken a hit from a pandemic. And when you drill into this, there's a whole confluence of various factors feeding into that, some of them more short term, some of them more longer term, uh, which are likely to persist for, for some time. So it uh, really re- opens up questions regarding the future of a workplace and the U.S. economy. 
Um, if you look at the short-term ones, I think it's worth really highlighting that September, there were still very high numbers of COVID-19 in the US. They averaged around 40,000 a day in September. It's almost back at peak levels. When you combine that with still comparatively low levels of vaccination rates in some regions of the US outside of you, outside of the Northeast, for example, there's probably still a fairly substantial component of the population who still harbor anxieties about returning to a workplace. And that's especially if they work or traditionally worked in pretty high turnover, uh, high contact, client-facing roles in those hospitality, leisure, and retail sectors. Okay, so people afraid of getting sick if they go back to work in restaurants, in shops, um, and other sort of high contact jobs. Um, I know that obviously um, those jobs tend to be slightly lower paid, slightly lower skilled, and also tend to be held by more women than men. And this, I think, feeds into one of the second issues which are facing women in particular, um, and that's childcare issues. Um, so over the, you know, most of 2021 up until uh, August, September, children were working or learning remotely, um, and that put a lot of pressure on parents in particular. And, and obviously, with women generally being lower paid, they tend to bear the brunt of um, the domestic side of things and had to sacrifice uh, work in order to, to look after kids. Now that schools in the U.S. have reopened, we're still seeing people citing childcare issues as reasons why they can't go back to work. So basically not being able to find appropriate childcare uh, because there's a shortage of teaching staff. There seems to be a shortage of, of uh, assistants working at nurseries and kindergartens and such like. Um, and that's really affecting the ability of people to go back to work, even if they do want to and even if they do find uh, appropriate work. So this, I think, may take a little bit longer to be resolved. Um, and then there's the arguments on, on unemployment benefits. Now, obviously, because of the pandemic, um, the U.S. government had, had introduced significant additional unemployment support um, to help uh, households cope with job losses. They've also had stimulus checks, which have been saved to a large extent. Um, and then there've been other support measures through child tax credits most recently. And that, that's helped people stay at home uh, when they've been unable to go to work because of lockdowns and, and other restrictions. Um, those benefits are now expiring. Do we think that's going to, to push people back to work? Yes. I mean, as those benefits start, start to run out, you would expect that more people have a more pressing need to return to the workplace and start to get a regular income as well. And also, I guess we are thankfully starting to see those COVID cases coming down and back under 100,000 a day in the US now as well. So those two short-term short issues should, we'd expect, start to see a greater, a greater return and, and a pickup in the NFP reports in the coming months, which perhaps might have expected to have started this month, that said. But certainly um, months ahead should see an improvement in that regard. So there are also the issues around people choosing not to go back to work. Now, I am struggling a little bit to understand how someone can simply choose not to work. At some point, the money will run out and you've presumably got to go back and find a job so that you can pay the bills. But what seems to be happening, particularly among older segments of the population, those who are potentially close to retirement when the pandemic hit, They've seen uh, quite a big boost to their retirement funds, um, and a lot of them have simply decided not to come back as things have reopened. Um, do you think this issue of uh, an aging population 
which seems to be uh, problematic in the US, uh, is, this, is this something which can be fixed or how are labor markets going to adapt to a decision by old people not to come back to work and simply remain uh, retired? Yeah, like you say, there definitely seems to be a growing cohort who are, who are questioning their desire to return to work at all at present, and especially those older people. Of a number of workers 65 years and older who are out of the labor force has really jumped considerably above its average in recent months of people simply not wanting to return to the office or, or their place of work for those final several years or months that final stint. Uh, in recent months we've also seen the we've seen region of four million people quitting their jobs in the US each month so that will be a an issue that has to be overcome as more of a longer term issue that perhaps might not be solved by these high vaccination rates and falling, falling COVID-19 levels. Where you might have looked in the past might have been to immigration levels to get more people coming into the country to take up those jobs, but that does not seem to be on the table at present. It's certainly a fairly taboo uh, or to, a, a taboo topic um, in terms of boosting immigration in the US at present. And that's been made even more difficult by the challenges posed by the pandemic crisis itself and the limitations that's posed on travel, et cetera. I suppose the immigration issue is quite relevant in the United Kingdom uh, in, in that context as well, because there we've had, again, shortages of workers because people from the EU may have returned back during the pandemic. And now because visa situations have changed uh, due to Brexit, they're simply not able to go back to the UK to their old jobs. Um, so I think that issue is not just unique to, to the US, um, but also what's happening um, in Europe. Um, I suppose it, it, it's a little bit different because the way that governments uh, managed the labor force during the pandemic um, was quite different in Europe and the UK versus the US. So in the US, we had people being made redundant by businesses and then the government stepping in to provide uh, enhanced unemployment benefits, whereas in Europe and the UK, they were not actually fired or made redundant. They were simply furloughed. So in other words, they were still technically employed, but the government took over paying their salaries. Um, so do you think that's made it easier for those people to go back to work as things have reopened? And that may be why we've not seen quite as much friction um, in Europe, for example, as in the US, where people, um, you know, we really had a lot of um, gaps between supply and demand. That doesn't seem to have been the case in, in the Eurozone. Can you talk us through some of those issues? Yeah, for sure. So as you say, a lot of those European countries in the UK took on this uh, furlough scheme whereby the state took on or paid, uh, took on much of a payment of employees to keep them attached to their workplaces. And this was modelled on the Kurzarbeit system, which had been used previously in Germany after the GFC to pretty great effect in terms of unemployment compared to its GDP hit, it was really much better compared to the other European countries. So having seen that, I think other European states really took on this model this time around. And like you say, it has led to much uh, shallower surge or much lesser surge in unemployment as compared to the US. I guess essentially it means if you're still attached to a work workplace, you're far more likely to just go back to work because you're still employed. It doesn't entail uh, new interviews or new uh, signing new contracts or learning a new position, etc. So that releases or relieves a lot of those frictions which we're seeing in the US in terms of 
how difficult it's being to entice many people back to some of these jobs. So it probably seems a, a good place to, to talk about what's happening in the GCC in terms of labor markets. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, uh, well, to some extent, the obvious uh, demographics in the GCC are very different to what we're seeing or what we're used to in uh, in Europe, in the UK and the United States and many other emerging markets. I think this region historically has always relied on immigration uh, because of the relatively small size of the population. And so during the pandemic, when people were let go, um, you know, there was very little in the way of uh, unemployment benefits or social support for non-citizens. And, and so we had the adjustment in the private sector where people lost their jobs and then they tend to leave when, when there are no jobs. But then when things reopen and hiring restarts, there is almost an infinite supply of labor uh, which can be imported to, to take up those, those positions. So I think we're not likely to see the same kind of um, frictions in terms of rehiring and, and, um, uh, and getting people back to work because as soon as there are uh, jobs available, people will uh, apply and, and come here to work. We did see in Saudi Arabia, the unemployment rates rise among Saudi nationals during the pandemic, but those have already started to come down again with the government stepping in in a fairly big way and increasing hiring in the public sector. But even in Saudi, we're still seeing the private sector taking a bit of time to recover from, from last year's shock um, and job growth hasn't been perhaps as strong as, as we would have hoped. Um, so if we, if we then look at what business can, businesses can do uh, to try and attract workers who may be more reluctant to go back to work then. What are we seeing in places like the US and, and the UK uh, with businesses trying to rehire? Yeah, so the obvious one, of course, is that they can simply pay them more like Joe Biden, uh, President Biden advised firms to do. Uh, we are seeing that the latest um, NFP report saw 0.6% month on month gain in average hourly earnings. I think it was the same with previous month, and that's been around four and a half, five percent up on last year. Uh, that year-on-year -year measure, though, I think should be borne in mind that some of that is uh, on the back of a different composition of a workforce, given that it's a large number of lower-paid jobs which have been taken out. So the proportion of higher-wage positions has climbed, and that's really reflected in that wage growth figure. Uh, so on top of paying and more, we have seen some more innovative solutions by firms looking to retain their workforce or simply entice them back to the office full time as included bonus weeks off or free food or more flexible working conditions. But I think the, the underlying one really has to be the one you have to keep an eye on is that wage packet and the implications that potentially has. So, I mean, if it, this is sustained, if we see faster wage growth, um, you know, for the next year or so, is this going to be a big problem for inflation? I mean, we already have headline inflation running well above what I think the central bank, the Fed would have wanted to see it. Um, and there is, you know, an expectation that that will slow over the next 12 months or so. Um, but is, is wage inflation going to be a, a problem from an inflation perspective? Yeah, so that is certainly the risk. What we've been seeing in terms of inflation in recent months, it has been driven by those transitory issues in terms of the um, you know, higher hotel costs and second-hand car costs, all, of, all, all associated with the great reopening and also commodity costs. 
they will dissipate. But if wage inflation starts to become more entrenched, then that's a harder thing to deal with. And we are seeing um, unions in the UK, for instance, they are pushing for greater wages for staff on the back of that inflation that's already in play. And if we start seeing firms um, you know, offering bigger and bigger wage packets to try and get people back into these positions, then that will also come into play as well, potentially driving up inflation overall. I think, you know, the union story, though, if you think back to the last period where we had quite a lot of inflation in, in the 1970s um, and early 80s, unions were very powerful uh, back then, I think much more so than now. And also the structure of the economy was quite different, right? So you had a lot more people working in jobs that lent themselves to being unionized. So people working in factories, for example. Whereas I think over, over the last couple of decades, we've seen much more growth in the services sector in terms of jobs. So, so I, I would imagine there's less uh, ability to unionize for those types of roles. And also, um, they've, you know, we've shifted to a gig economy, right? So a lot of people are uh, just choosing to, to work when they want, uh, choosing their hours. They're on zero hours contracts, some of them. Um, and certainly in, in the US, uh, working conditions and contracts are, are very flexible. So you can be hired uh, just simply when you need it and then let go when you're not. So I, I would imagine that the structure of the economy means that unions have less ability to push for broad-based uh, you know, wage increases that are in line with much higher inflation. Um, so I guess as long as people eventually come back to work, these wage pressures should ease, right? Yeah, that would be the expectation. As you say, that the proportion of unionized US workers, for instance, that was only around 10% last year. And that's half of where it was even at the start of the 80s, as it was already starting to come down. So the, 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 the pricing power of those unions is far less than it was. And the, you know, the makeup of the US economy has also changed. Uh, and also, you know, firms won't necessarily pay more. They will pay more for staff. They will look for ways around this. They will look for workarounds around this. And if if people still uh, push back against coming back to work for wages they've been on, then that will only um, accelerate trends toward automation, uh, not only in the manufacturing sector, but also in the services sector increasingly as well. So that will also over a longer term, at least, serve to keep a cap on those kind of inflationary wage pressures. Yeah, we have seen quite a surge in business investment over the last year or so. Um, and that suggests that businesses are looking at investing in technology and equipment that makes the, the employees that they do have more productive and more efficient, but also potentially reduces their need to hire quite as many people as they, they had before. Now, that's a good thing in some respects because generally that is disinflationary. So, um, you know, technological advance, advancement that boosts efficiency and productivity generally uh, reduces inflationary pressures. But it also raises the risk, again, of people being locked out of the workforce. So, for example, if, if you are a relatively low-skilled uh, shop worker, for example, who, you know, who, who would sort of um, work at a checkout or stocking shelves in the supermarket, if those jobs become automated because wages are simply too high, uh, then then what? Where does that leave people who used to do those jobs? Right? They'd find it quite difficult, presumably, to upskill and reskill and find alternative employment when they are ready and able to go back to work. So I think there are 
social implications for for these sort of tr- sorts of trends, which which need to be borne in mind. And then you've got to have government policy um, appropriately set to support those people in those sectors that are now struggling to to find work. Um, are there any other sort of things that businesses can do to to try and offset the impact of higher wages? And I also think, sorry, before we answer that, it's it's probably really only the bigger companies that have the, the capital to invest in this kind of technology and innovation. So smaller businesses are going to really struggle if they're faced with higher costs for staffing um, and perhaps not be able to afford those those high salaries uh, and, and may not be able to continue to operate the hours that they'd like um, or to provide the services that they'd like. So again, I think uh, it does lend itself to survival of the, the fittest in the sense that, you know, the bigger companies, those that have the most cash to deploy, will probably be able to withstand the current pressures um, better than smaller mom and pop shops uh, that, that won't be able to survive. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I think, um, you know, in some of these circumstances in the past, the firms have those that can't invest in automation necessarily, they've simply produced more or changed to producing different things. So that will presumably lead to um, you know, some firms will not be able to cope with these pressures. It's not only these wage pressures, we're also coping with these very sharp energy price rises we've seen recently. And while we do expect that those will dissipate on base effect, if nothing else, that leads to very sharp pressures in the short term, at least. Can they afford their workforce? And to keep and to keep their lights lit, essentially. Yeah. Um, so just to to end off, we have um, the U.S. Federal Reserve scheduled to meet in early November. Um, at the last FOMC meeting, Jerome Powell had indicated that if the September jobs reading was decent, uh, then that would be enough for them to start tapering asset purchases. Do we think the the reading that we had on Friday would be considered decent enough for the Fed to vote to start tapering in November? I think probably decent enough. I mean, obviously, it wasn't a good report. It wasn't a half a million expected, but that was also on the back of, as we mentioned, a very sharp surge in COVID cases, which might have derailed what might have happened otherwise. And coming in where it did, it probably wasn't bad enough for the Fed really to roll back on what is signposted already, I'd say. Okay, so quite a lot to to summarize then. I guess, you know, the the bottom line is that labor market frictions will probably last longer than we had initially thought. Um, But at this stage, they don't look like they're feeding through to inflation through sustained wage growth. We've only really had a few months of of really high wage growth um, after decades of wages being under pressure uh, and relatively uh, low relative to, to corporate profits. Um, It may take longer for the U.S. labor force participation to recover than in the U.K. and Europe because of the fact that people were retrenched rather than furloughed. But ultimately, we do expect people to come back to work, um, not least because the benefits that they've enjoyed over the last year and a half uh, will be declining uh, and have some some of which have already expired. Um, Yes, there is some money in the bank, but eventually that will run out. So we do think that eventually uh, supply does come back uh, and help to moderate some of the, the wage growth and ease some of the frictions that we're seeing in the labor market. 
do you have anything further you'd, you'd want to add? Uh, no, I think you've summed it up very nicely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Danny. It was really good to have you chatting on the podcast and hopefully we'll get some opportunities uh, going forward to talk about different sorts of things which are going on in, uh, in global markets. Thanks very much. And thank you to the listeners. We hope that you enjoy the podcast and we look forward to speaking to you again next time.